everybody. Welcome to Commercial Construction Elevate the Industry podcast series. I'm your host, Dave Presida, and I want to thank you for joining us today. The purpose of the podcast is to help anyone from owner to intern who is in the commercial construction industry understand the business more so you can make better decisions about where you want to go and how you want to get there. We're going to do that two ways. We're going to introduce you to industry leaders as well as more granular episodes by me. I've been doing this for 40 years now and you'll hear the good, the bad, the ugly, but hopefully you'll be better after the podcast than you were before. Now, today is an interesting one because we're we're talking about common questions and concerns in commercial construction. Now, these are not random, but these are questions that I get either through the podcast itself by people or during my normal course of business. It's going to impact everybody. Like we said before, if you're a project manager, estimator, you could own a business, you might be just starting out. These questions are going to be uh, relevant to you. So let's get started. The first question, I'm young in business. What advice would you offer me to advance quickly in the industry? Now, I would say that the, the thing that you really need to do the most, no matter what position you have, is really, really do it well. If you want to advance in the industry, I don't care what you're doing. You got to stand out. Your immediate uh, peers, your supervisor, your owner needs to recognize that you, you, you're special, that you offer something special, that you're trainable, that you're, that you're trustworthy, that you care, right? They need to know that you want to move forward. Now, not everybody does, and that's what makes it easy for you to separate yourself from them. Do extra work, whatever it takes, because a couple of things will happen. One is you will stand out within your business, but the second thing is you're going to stand out to people who are related to the business. Uh, clients, for example, vendors, people who interact with you and your company. There is no question in my mind, and I'm not suggesting that you go, you know, on a road trip looking for a different job, but if you want to, if you really want to advance quickly in the business, I think between the ages of, let's say 22 and, and 28, you should work for a few different companies. Now, there's nothing wrong with working for one good company, but think about the, the, you know, the ramifications. One is you're going to see one management style and it could be really good. It might not be good. I've seen several, some were good and some were not. So, you know, you can learn from each, but at a young age in the business, you should get exposed to as many different people, as many different types of management as possible, even different types of construction. But you're only going to do that if people see you as a valuable asset. Now, where are you going to make the most money? Not, you know, not in a lateral transfer, not in a lateral move. And certainly in your business, look, it, it's hard for an owner of a business to justify a 15 or 20% raise when everybody else is getting five. But it's a lot easier to make 15 or 20% more if you go from company A to company B. I am not suggesting you bounce from company to company for your entire career. I'm saying as a young person in the business, get as much experience as you can, be as good as you can, stand out, and the rest will take care of itself. Okay, next question. Main differences in residential and commercial construction. I did an interview with Todd DeWalt. You can find it on the website or YouTube. Uh, Todd is an industry expert in both commercial and residential. He's focusing on a residential and I will echo what he said. 
which is true. Residential and commercial are very different. Commercial typically is a much more sophisticated uh, process from the, the sale to the upfront documents, to the submittals, to the pay cycle. You know, a residential, you're working on smaller buildings and I'm not saying they're not big jobs because they could be. You might have, you know, 200 homes, right? To do something in. But the process is much more, much simpler in residential. Commercial uh, and residential, both safety is huge, but safety really costs money in commercial. You've got to almost have an infrastructure because, you know, you have project managers in each, but a project manager on a residential job might be able to handle a lot of jobs because they're, they're less complex than a residential contractor. And even in commercial, think about this. Commercial construction, you might have uh, in DC, for example, you have a height limitation and that height limitation may take you up 12 stories, but they're sprawling buildings versus a 60 story high rise in New York City. And I worked for a company uh, who had offices in both areas and they, even in commercial, they're different because of the reason and the type of building. An example is uh, we asked, uh, we needed project managers. We needed three on a job and it was the, uh, National Museum for African-American History and Culture doing all the interior work. And uh, the reason we needed three PMs is because the job was so intense. Just, you know, so now our friends in New York, uh, great people, they said, well, why do you need three PMs on one when we have one PM on three jobs in New York City? Well, in New York City, your jobs are high rises, repetitive work, right? You go one floor, they're, they're all the same, except the lobby and maybe one floor in between and the, the penthouse. The, you do one set of submittals. There's, there's a huge difference. So the question was, the differences between residential and commercial, and I'm going to tell you there's a difference between types of commercial as well. Next question. I work as a PM for a drywall contractor. They seem dysfunctional, but are good people. They almost can't get out of their own way. What can I do to help add value? Well, you know, that's that's a tough question and it's it's one I hear a lot. You know, you, uh, you hear a lot of complaints in general, right? You hear people that complain all the time. First of all, don't be one of them, okay? If there is an issue, understand what the issue is. And the issue may be impacted by processes. Typically, dysfunctional companies don't have a master plan they don't have a strong leader. Uh, it's going to be tough. It's going to be tough for you to change that. But you can change things as it relates to you and your jobs. Make sure, A, that you understand the job that you're managing. Okay? If there's issues, bring them up in real time. Don't kick the can down the road. Right? You be really good. Even if the company you're working for could be a lot better, you be good. Now, if their process is like their job cost tracking or they're estimating, let's say there's a poor job handoff. That means you're getting a, a you're getting handed a job without all the information. It's got to stop. You've got to demand a better handoff because you've got, whether it's a good estimate or a bad estimate, you're not, but what am I getting? What am I expecting? What are our budgets, right? So as a project manager, all you can really influence is your job. Now, let's, let's, say your, let's say your jobs continually come in better. And I'm not saying they all come in high because you might get a job at 10% and pull it in at 14. That's big, right? While the other guy next to you has got an 18% job, he brings it at 14. Same thing happens next year. They might adopt 
your processes. They may make you a project manager over others. So look, if, if you like the company, you don't have to leave. Manage what you can, influence what you can by what you do. So next one, how do you spot a good project? What does that mean? Wow, we, we, could, do, we could do a whole uh, episode on this. And I, did I will touch on it next episode in business development because that is part of what I consider the sales process. The sales process, how do you screen work? And you know, you gotta know what your strengths are. And, and first of all, who does that, right? Who is the screener? Is it the, the chief estimator? Do you, is there a business development person? Is it, you know, is it an estimator? Do ITB's invitations to bid just come in randomly and hey, I'll take this one, you take that one. Is there a method to the madness? Oftentimes there isn't. But for a good company, a good company has a process, whereas they understand, first of all, I'm going to say it again, master plan. What is our, what do we expect? What are our budgets for sales and revenue? Okay. And, and hey, can we, does this job fit that criteria? A good job is a different things to different companies. To your company, it should fit your criteria on A, the type of work. It should be fit right in with what you do. B, the customer. Is it, do you have a good relationship with the customer? Do they pay their bills? Do they run a good job? Right? You can do everything right and be on a job where you've got crummy management and it doesn't matter how good you are, you are stuck. Right? But a good job, a good job means different things to different people, but unless there is a process in place that determines that, it's going to be a haphazard pro uh, process. Bottom line, it has to fit. It has to fit your profile. You know, for those starting out, who exactly handles the design of the project? All right, well, this is really getting to the fundamentals. The job, a job for those of you who are just starting out, we did say this is everyone from owner to intern. Um, the life of a project starts out with an idea. An idea, an owner typically wants to build something. Let's say it's a multifamily job, Amazon locally, for example. Uh, when Amazon said they were coming to DC, you know what happened. All the developers started, uh, when I say owners, developers started to, um, you know, put teams together. So a team for a developer would look like this. It would be a developer, an architect, an engineer, a general contractor. That's how it would start. And, and you know, a financing piece, of course. But sometimes that comes from the owner. And, you know, the architects involved with meeting with the owner, which is in this case would be Amazon, and say, look, this is what we want the buildings to look like. Give us some ideas on how we can do it and give us some budget. So it all starts there with schematic drawings with, yeah, I like that. No, what's this a square foot? It's $150 a square foot for your exterior. And if you add these closures, it's going to add 20 bucks a square foot. I mean, that's how all this starts. What kind of structure are we going to have? Well, DC is, you know, predominantly concrete. You know, so it's going to be more like poured in place uh, structure, right? And you got big concrete guys here. Now, New York City, you don't have room for concrete. It's going to be steel. You know, so those things, and again, that's why, you know, that's why these teams, some teams travel over the country, like Clark Construction, for example, has an office here, and they, they dominate the D.C. market. There's no question. A lot of other good contractors around, but they dominate. They also dominate on the West Coast. Yeah, West Coast is all seismic. It's, it's different. 
but they have local branches and they understand the local politics. They understand who the best contractors are. So an example, they might call um, a big concrete company, one, one of these bidders, there might be six or whatever, uh, these teams, and they might get a, uh, a big mechanical guy they'll get on board first because they want, mechanical is a big dollar trade, so is structural, then glass and glazing, and then maybe drywall. But that's kind of how it happens. The architect designs it. The, 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 you know, the subcontractors have input because if the architect designs something wild, well, it's not going to, it's not going to, it's not going to cost out well. Right. So that's kind of how a project begins. Even the small ones, you get an owner, an architect or a general contractor, and they all get together and they, you know, the owner understands they, they do pro formas based on, uh, on, on multifamily housing. Okay, once we get people in, this is what the rents are going to be. So what's our payback? Well, what's our construction cost? There you go. Safety record. Safety. Wow. <laughs> what would be a deal breaker? Contractor standpoint, different viewpoints. So everybody has what's called an experience modification rating, an EMR. When you start a new business, your EMR is, is one. Right? It's one. 1.0. And it goes up or down from there. You want it to go down. So after a year, you're going to get, you know, your insurance company will come in and look at your workman's comp and general liability and all your claims, if any, how many lost days you have and all that stuff. And if it's really good compared to the industry, your EMR will go down. I'm currently working with a company, big drywall company uh, and other things, and their EMR is 0.71. That's excellent. Now, think about it. The, the, when you say deal breaker, if you have a horrible safety record, people are not going to want to hire you because, you know, you, look, you can say all the right things when you meet with them. Yeah, we have a safety director. We have this. We have that. We care about safety. Everybody says that. Look at your results because that's the proof in the pudding. So a lot of contractors these days and even owners have what they call a, a work, uh, an OSIP, which is an owner controlled insurance program or a CSIP, which is a contractor-controlled insurance program, or a, now I've seen this too, a DSIP, developer, right, controlled contract. So what these different entities are doing is saying, look, we're going to bet on ourselves. Instead of paying an outside insurance company, we might, you know, we might uh, insure some of it off to a third party, but we're going to provide the insurance for the project. And in most cases, in most big companies, that is a that's an actual profit center for them. So if it's a profit center, think about this. If you have a really good safety record and they're betting on themselves and you're on their team, they just got, they just felt warm and fuzzy because they know you're good at it. And, and you're probably going to be very good in the field. So your safety record, the, your history is a bright spot if it's good. It's a dark spot if it's not. You know, for those who don't necessarily want to own a business, what are some fulfilling, lucrative job paths in commercial construction? You know, they're all over the place um, and changing, by the way. We talk about what are the general, um, what are the general job descriptions? It could be, you could be an estimator. You could be a project manager. First of all, let me, let me go back a step. Anybody, right? You, if you're an IT, if you're in HR, I don't care what kind of business, there are jobs there, right? CFO, 
whether it's a manufacturer or a construction company, yeah, there are differences, but if you're a CFO, you know what the differences are. So those are common across the industry. Now, construction, you have estimators. You've got to quantify the numbers because people are going to want numbers that you that you can support. Um, you're going to have people that's all they do all day is do takeoff, quantity takeoffs. You're going to have salespeople and business development, sales and marketing. Some small companies may not, but most companies do. Uh, you're going to have project managers. Project managers are critical because they do exactly that. They manage the projects and they they fight <laughs> they fight with the clients and they cajole the superintendent. They want to get better production and they make all the submittals and they want to buy the product at the right numbers. And it's, that's, a, that's a big time job. Superintendent, you can work in the field. You know, one of the biggest, biggest issues in construction today, residential or commercial, is the lack of young people coming into the business that want to work in the field. I can tell you, this market, if you're decent, if you're decent, I don't care what trade you're in, you're going to make at least 25 bucks an hour plus benefits. Okay. And most companies will give you insurance. Now, if you're here for 10 years and you're not making 32, 33 bucks an hour, if you're working in the field with tools, something's wrong. Either you're with the wrong company or you're just not, maybe you're not, you know, maybe you're not, they don't understand your value. Let me put it that way. But there's a lot of different levels in the business, small, medium and large uh, a couple of those things are true in that you can fit one of those roles into any company my recommendation for somebody who's looking for um, you know a, a career you take a construction management course do an internship with a big general contractor you know or, or any major subcontractor do an internship invest invest you may not get paid you may get paid a little bit but man, you're going to learn a, a, either one or two things, what you want to do, maybe what you don't want to do. I remember working in a precast concrete factory when I was, you know, in high school. And I said, you know what? I mean, I had to wear a hard hat every day. It was hot, dirty. I said, I don't want to do this. But I would have never known unless I did it, right? So don't, don't hesitate on trying something new and don't hesitate on investing in your future, right? By getting and to see a company from the inside out. Okay, so we're gonna take a quick break, do a commercial, and then we're gonna come back with some more questions. Guten Tag. Anyway, you'll get that in a minute. I've been in the air battery business for 20 plus years uh, from when it was a single asphaltic peel and stick impermeable membrane to what it is today. It's a big part of, of the building science. The business has changed. There are several manufacturers in it, but I choose today to deal with Dorkin, a German-based company. Not only are they competitively priced, their technical support is great, and mainly, I can always count them, they're there when I need them, in the field or during the bid. The biggest single differentiator between Dorkin and other manufacturers is they have a simple system. An example, on a previous job, uh, we have five different products to do the same thing that Dorkin gives me with two products. So Dorkin, I thank you for that. My uh, workers thank you. My clients thank you. I would urge you to check Dorkin out at their website, dorken.com. That's dorken.com. 
So welcome back to Commercial Construction, Common Questions and Concerns. Uh, let's start out with our next question. I'm in commercial construction sales. How should I look at commissions versus salary? You know, that's, that's a good one because I've seen many different styles, if you will. I was with a major uh, public company who looked at sales as a high commission, uh, low, low salary. They said, if the guy's going to make money, he's got to produce. And, and it works for them. Uh, the problem in, you know, in commercial construction is you got to understand what the upside is uh, and into what you're selling. So if you're in sales, I would recommend that you develop a healthy salary with a bonus based on results. Now, what do you say results? What does that mean? That means the bottom line because you could sell anything unless there's a strict process that keeps the sales force like, you know, within a certain parameter. I mean, I was with a commercial company, right? The same company actually that had the commercial divisions too. And they had salespeople and their, their salespeople were their estimators. And it was just, you can't do it that way because the estimator would sell anything he wanted. If, the, if let's say it's a $350,000 job for air barrier. Well, we had one particular estimator just give away the whole penthouse, okay? Because he wanted to reduce his price. Now this job was a year away. So he sold a job for $350,000, got most of his commission before the job even started. And it was based on the sale, not the result. I, as a manager, would never have that. I'd say, look, you know, I would give you part of your commission based on the sale because I know I'd have control over that, right? At the end of the day, you'd have bid reviews and you say, okay, good. If, if you're above 15% or 20% or whatever the, the market is, by the way, your percentage goes up, the more specialized you become because you're going to do less work. When you're doing big work, your percentage probably comes down a little bit. Manufacturing is different than contracting and so on, but in general. So if you're in sales, uh, I would get, make sure that you have a a healthy salary that supports your daily needs because you don't want to worry about selling. That's no way to sell. Selling should be the gravy, right? When you sell a job, you get commissioned, you get paid for it, and that's the money that you don't need every day. Then you can do something different with it. That, that's a, my opinion. Now, if, if you work for a, a company that's going to allow you just to sell without any oversight, that will not last very long. It won't. So if you think you got away with something, you might want to think again. Now, some salespeople would say, well, why should I be, uh, you know, burdened by what I can't control? Which means if I'm going to get paid on the result, that means the field has to come through too. That's true. But you know what? In the overall picture of ownership and the distribution of profits, right? You've got to be, you've got to count on that to happen. If that doesn't happen, maybe you're in the wrong job. Right, but what if what if you get a job and you sold a job and it's for a million bucks and there's $300,000 in change orders because you have a good project manager and now your job is worth $1.3 That goes the other way too. So uh, in a nutshell, I would say healthy salary, uh, nice commission, some of based on the sales so you don't have to wait forever for your money. Right? If you get, uh, let's say you get 5% or 3% commission on the sale. And it's a it's a thirty thousand it's a million dollars that's thirty grand you're going to get. Maybe you get ten of it up front, and maybe the twenty is based on how well the job does. 
Okay. I own a family business and want to get out in the next three years. What would you recommend I do to ensure I can get out? Well, you should listen to the episode with uh, Kevin Kennedy and Joe Bizzano that I did in, in uh, one of the prior, I think it was like episode number four. And they are exit planning experts. And I will I will tell you what they'll tell you in a, in a short period is that in order to get out of a business, right, you have to have, if you're going to sell it internally, there's, you know, you can get out of business by selling it externally. I have one on, I have an episode on selling a business too. Listen to it. But if, if you don't, you know, some businesses are going to be able to be sold to external companies. I go through all of that, but some won't be. Some are with family. You might want to, you might want to turn it over to the next generation. Listen to Vic and Pete Cornelia in a different episode I did because that shows you the proper way to do it. But if you want an outside a consultant, I would recommend Kevin Kennedy and Joe Bizzano because they're the beacon uh, exit planners. And you can find them on my website and on a different podcast. But they're going to explain to you the first and foremost is that you've got to have a group behind you that can run the business. And you say, well, why? I'm going to sell the bit Because if you sell it internally, it's going to take time for you to get your money out. And if the business continues to prosper, you will get your money. If the business doesn't continue to prosper, you're not going to get paid. Remember, the business is the cash cow. So the business has to do two things. It's got to, it's got to generate enough cash flow for operations and excess it's got to pay to you. So you have to develop that. that that's a that's thing where you're going to get, you know, legal, you're going to get legal advice and you're going to get financial advice from, from an accountant. But but I would talk to Kevin and Joe because they that's what they specialize in. Number two, first of all, so I said you got to have somebody who can take it over. You got to make sure it can fund you and the business. Uh, and you've got to develop that plan. And that plan, and, I, and this question is great, it says three years. That is probably the inside time where you can turn it around, right? I mean, Joe and Kevin may tell you it's going to be 10 years. I, my attention span isn't even close to that. But three years is reasonable. So you can develop, you can develop your management team to take over. Next question. What kind of degrees work best for commercial construction? Well, I mean, it depends on what you want to do. I was a phys ed teacher, so I could say, hey, if you get a phys ed degree, you're going to be great in construction. <laughs> That's not true. You know, I think I think your education is critical. And, and let me give you an example. You know, if you, want, if you are an engineering student, you're ripe to work for a business. Uh, it could be electrical engineering, chemical, it could be anything. But you're going to be smart. There's really nothing in this business that can't be taught. So if you're teachable, you're in good shape. I don't care what it is you studied. Right now, construction management, that's a very general uh, curriculum, but I think that's really good if you have an architect's background. So anything that would, you know, directly lend itself, it's easy enough to find. But what I look for in people is emotional intelligence. And I say that because if you if you're sharp and you can see the room from above and you can understand what the people on the other side of the table need, whether it's your in your own company and in an internal meeting, or if it's with a, you know, with a client or a, or a vendor, you know, that's why it's so simple to stand out if you're good. So I look for that more than anything. Maybe it's because I'm, you know, I wasn't, I, I wasn't, uh, 
educated in construction. It was kind of self-education, but um, that's a good question. Next one, can you get in the industry and excel without one? Well, I think I just got that question answered. Yes, you can. You know, it, and I describe, and it's really, it's it's similar in a lot of ways I, in, in a previous episode, starting a business. In this case, we're not looking at starting a business, but it's similar, starting a career, right? It's the same type of dynamic. The biggest single thing you have to answer is why. Why? Why am I doing this? What do I want to get out of it? And if it's a strong answer, you're probably going to succeed because there will be hurdles along the way you're going to have to you're going to have to to uh, clear. But if the why is really strong, more like more than likely you're going to get there. I work for a commercial insulation contractor and want to explore starting my own business. What should I consider? Man, that's relevant because that's what I did. You know, I said it earlier uh, about young people starting in a business. Do really well whatever you do. Okay, And I'm going to say that again because you're not going to succeed in business unless you're good. And you've got to know why you want to do it and all the things we go over in starting a business. I would strongly recommend you listen to that episode. But for for this particular question, uh, let me say this. Don't avoid doing things that are unethical. Don't ever go there. You don't have to. Right. When I say unethical, I mean like stealing customers and, you know, uh, undermining your current employer. Don't do it. You don't have to because that will follow you forever. It'll, it'll be, it, you just don't need to do it, right? I had a non-compete and I abided by my non-compete until my former employer did some goofy things, but I was ready to do a two year sit out because it was the right thing to do. Um, so if you're considering starting a business, you know, you gotta ask yourself, is there a need for what I wanna do? Number one, okay? Of course, you've already answered the why. Is there number two? Is there a need? Now, if this if this person, if this company you're working for has the lion's share of the market and they dictate pricing and everything, there's probably room for somebody else. If there are five other companies doing the same thing, you have to ask yourself what what's going to make you different. Because if you're offering the same thing five other guys do, it's going to be a long road to hoe. Number three, you know, make sure if you make sure you get good representation, make sure you get good advice. It's a big step. You're likely going to invest your money or other people's money. You want to make sure you know what you're doing. Okay. And again, in my episode, we talk about it in the, in the starting a business about a, a, a business plan. Those are critical, right? I talk about representation, talking to somebody like me who's done it over and over. You know, I've had a great career and it continues, but one thing is for sure. I never burn a bridge and I never will. You shouldn't either. As a person on site, mechanics, foreman, superintendent, etc., and on the field day to day, how do you spot a good project manager, manager, qualities of a good PM? Good question. I think a person who does what they say they're going to do is of extreme value. 
You get a lot of people who do what they say they're gonna do when it's convenient. But when it's not, when it's hard, right? When you have to bring bad news to your boss, that's hard to do. People avoid that like the plague. A good project manager will, and I said it earlier, you will make sure that you understand, that person will make sure they understand the job when it gets turned over to them. They will question where questions need to be asked, right? They're not being, you know, they're not being negative. It's just, look, I'm not sure I understand this. Can you help me, right? Did you pick up this detail? What products did you consider when you looked at this system, right? Not that they're going to dictate who you have to buy, but pick their brain. Maybe they know, they may know something you don't, right? But a good project manager will keep the company's interest in the forefront, will be transparent. If they don't know an answer, they're going to ask a question. The, the biggest concern I have in, in, any, in any part of the business are people who don't know what they don't know because that can be dangerous. They can make decisions based on, you know, based on instinct, gut instinct. No, you don't do that in this business. You base your, you base your uh, decisions on facts and historical data, right? And experience. And if you're young, you can still be good because you need to lean on somebody that has more experience than you. So again, a good PM will be transparent, hardworking on it and have the company's best interest at heart. Okay, so we're going to take another short break and we'll come back with some more questions. Mark Twain once said, and I'm serious, it's the clothes that make the man. Naked people have little or no influence on society. The wardrobe was provided by Benchmark Clothiers, custom clothes to fit your lifestyle. You can find them on Facebook and Instagram at Benchmark Clothiers. And when you go there, tell them Dave sent you. Welcome back. Next question. I'm a chief estimator for a large drywall contractor. I'm overwhelmed with getting work. I need help. How can I get it without sending the wrong message? So let me, let me be clear, the wrong, like you need help, but you don't want to send the wrong message. The wrong message would be by throwing your hands up in the air. I'm not sure what that is, but I can tell you this. I know people in your situation, your chief estimator, your, your, you know, you've got bids coming in every day. You've got three, four, five, ten 10 estimators. You got to manage all that. And then you've got to make sure that they sell in a lot of cases. I mean, I'm assuming in this case, you must not have a business development group to help you because if you're, if it's, if the estimators are responsible for sales, that is a very difficult road. I would say this, you need to sit down with your, uh, with the owners perhaps, or your boss, whoever that might be, ops manager, who knows, and say, look, we need to discuss the process. Because until you discuss the process, I can tell you this, the owner may not even know what that is. Like for example, you get ITBs coming in, we mentioned a little bit earlier, is that who screens those? Do you, for everybody? I mean, that's a full-time job. And then how do you delegate those? How do you pick the right ones? Are you consistent with the master plan? You know, are, what's your budget? Is it achievable? Do you have to get second level work, work with people you really don't want to work with to make those numbers, right? Is there a better way to do it? 
Is there a better way to get work by adding an adjacent service? I did it. I just did it with a company. I'm doing it now. Big drywall company, right? They got into prefabricated exterior wall systems. They were worth, I don't know, 20 bucks a foot with air barrier. We added rain screen to the exterior. We're already on the exterior wall, but that little addition is probably worth 60 bucks a foot, triple what the exterior wall is worth and now they got a single source. These are things that you, that you and the, the management group need to sit down and discuss because never do you or your owners or anybody want to be overwhelmed with a task because that's when mistakes happen. That's when people get burnt out. Don't be one of them. How do you handle projects that don't seem to end? Delays, <laughs> weather, work's not ready. Well, how do you handle projects that don't, that don't end? We talked about what a good project manager is. I'm going to start there because too often, too often project managers don't want to create, um, you know, any kind of disruption in the work. They, they don't want to, they don't want to confront the client and they want to kind of wish for the good things to happen. And we all do, but you can't. Okay. Lots of times jobs, if, if a job has, if your scope of work has a one year duration, let's say, and the job is supposed to start in January and end of December, but it doesn't start until March. Well, guess what? You now have, you know, two months less of work, of time to get the same work done. What does that mean? That, and, and that's not counting on other things that are going to happen, right? What if the window guy's late? What if the building gets enclosed late and it's dried in late? You can't put your drywall in or if you're doing an interior finish. There's so many things that can go wrong that will affect your cost of the job. That's what you pay a project manager to protect. So the first thing I would, I would do is make sure you have the right budgets for the work, number one. And if you do, when you get on a, on a floor, try to make it a floor that's ready to roll because you're going to develop what's called a measured mile. That measured mile, if, whether you do five things or one thing on a job, you're going to be able to track and justify, hopefully not, but in a court of law, that without all these disruptions and this compression and all these other people working around me that you forced me to do on the top three floors because we had to get the building done by December, it cost me this much to do. But Matt, when I got up to these floors, these, these floors where I was compressed, it cost me double. If you don't have that measured mile, it's going to be hard to justify. You're going to be shooting in the wind and that's, that's not the position that you want to be in. If you can't get a measured mile for a whole floor, get a measured mile for part of the floor. You have to establish what you can do under the circumstances that you sold the job for. Right? They bought it for 12 months. You figured 50 guys average for 12 months, but now it's 70 because it's eight months or whatever the number is. There's a difference there. Every time you add a new guy, you're adding less efficiency. Every time you add 10 people, that's 10 times, 10 more people that are less efficient. Not just the 10. What about the other 30? Everybody is because now you've diluted your supervision. You got more guys running around doing things. Again, the pro look, you're not going to, uh, you're not going to, you, what you don't want to do is get in a situation where they're pointing their finger at you. So by contract, they could, they could, um, you might say, oh, well, that's not my work. By contract, they might, 
tell you to do the work. They will direct you to do the work. You're going to have to do it. You've got to keep good records. PlanGrid is a great tool. PlanGrid, as if most of you guys know, uh, PlanGrid is a software product that allows you to get real-time changes in the drawings. You can take pictures. You can timestamp it. You can put it on the floor. Did a job. I'll, I'll mention it again. The National Museum for African American History and Culture. And because we used PlanGrid, right? First, the first time the contractor heard it, he says, oh my God, you're going to claim us to death. And I diffused that right away. I said, no. I said, the reason we're going to use PlanGrid early on is because we want to show you what impacts us when you have the mechanical guy put things in ahead of us that he shouldn't just because you want him to get done or he's forcing you to get done. And you know, and you know what they did? First, they breathed a sigh of relief and then they changed the process because we were, and I didn't, I didn't go at him like it was a hammer. I said, no, 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 this is a tool. And it was. It would have been a hammer later on if I needed to use it, but I didn't because they changed the way they were building the job. Anyway, there's ways to mitigate problems. You're probably not going to be the answer to the problem unless you're the problem itself. Hopefully you're not, uh, but, but many things can go wrong. You need to make sure your paperwork is in order. I'm in business or I'm a business owner and I, and I need to professionalize sales. How do I do it without adding overhead or causing issues with my staff? Okay, mainly your estimating staff. Well, again, I cover this in pretty in pretty much detail in uh, the, build, um, the business development episode that's gonna air next, but let me give you a hint. If you're a business owner, right, you probably professionalized or specialized your field because you got a superintendent, you have foreman. So you've specialized that. You've specialized estimating because you don't want to do it. Maybe you did it when you got started, but you know, now it's just, it's too cumbersome. You don't have time to do it. So you've hired people and you've specialized. You have bookkeepers now because you don't want to do that either. You specialized every part of your business, but in this case, you haven't specialized sales. Lots of companies do it. Well, we sold this way forever. We're not going to change. Okay, uh, that's that's one way to do it. But I think that, that you know, there's a key part of that question without increasing my overhead. So if you're a company and you have, let's say, seven estimators, they cost you. And you have a budget of, of uh, whatever, 20 million. Okay, and you need those seven estimators to get you 20 million. Or do you? Let's say, what if you shave two estimators off and now you have five? But what if because the business development piece, you professionalize sales, right? What if that improved your processes, which improved your close rate? So now you've got five estimators working on maybe better jobs. Maybe they're more well-informed and maybe you have people in the market that know which jobs to get, that have good connections, that have time to spend with the customers that can help you sell that work. I'll tell you, the answer is not to add more estimators. The answer is to improve your process. You can, you can reallocate money from two estimators into a really good business development person or group. 
and that way your overall close rate up again. I think your whole business will improve because you're going to be doing work that's more suited to you. You're going to be doing work for better customers because now you have professionalized sales without adding overhead. Where do I find commercial construction leads? They're all over the place. There, I mean, there are services ad nauseum that can give you leads. But if you're in a local market, and I said this many, many times, and I'll say it again, your best marketing tool is you. Your best marketing tool is your ability to do what you say you're going to do so that your customers trust you. And what's going to happen, I think the, the best way to get a lead is to have somebody call you and say, hey, I just found out about this job. We're looking at it. We'd like you to look at it too. Now, some companies, you know, again, it depends on what type of business you do. If you do very specialized business and it's small pieces, you're going to have to go out and look for look for work. Okay. And you, there's, there's many, many different ways to do it. And there's many different services that can help you, but you need salespeople to do it. Uh, if you do bigger work, you're going to do less jobs, but you got to make sure those jobs, because you're investing in them, are jobs that are suited for you. So construction leads in my history have come, the best ones are word of mouth and, and direct, which means people know who you are in business. Now, if you're a startup, different story. If you're a startup that used to work for a big company, you should know the players anyway, right? And again, I'm gonna say, don't go after work that your old company went after. You can go after new work with the same client for sure, but don't mess with the jobs that are already in play. Um, you know, but there's, there's again, construction services. All you gotta do is, is Google construction leads and you'll get hit with a bunch of them. But I'm gonna say it again in closing, your best marketing effort is you and your ability to do what you say you're gonna do that will bring work to you. I'm a growing business. I'm in constant need of financing. I don't want to increase my banking line. What would you recommend I do to create cash? That's a huge one. You know, it, construction pay cycle is really terrible. It is. Think about it. You know, you're, you're, you, you do work today. You bill for it at the end of the month. Uh, it goes through a month with the client and owner and all that. And then you get paid. It could be 75 days. That's hard. And that's just one job. And, you know, so what we're saying here is what other things can I do, especially a young business? A young business, this is like, you know, critical because you're you're not going to want to mortgage everything just to get a bank line, but you can still do business. Remember, small businesses and this is this this is relevant to any business, but especially young, small businesses. There's a lot of ways to do to, to creative financing. You know, number one. Um, and I'll tell you why, because I had to do it. Um, listen to my listen to my profile. You'll find out why. So, first thing you got to do is work with people that pay the bills, because that's you know. So if you have let's say five hundred thousand dollar bank line and you want to do five million bucks, you know you might be able to do it. But let's say you wanted to hedge your bet, you wanted to grow to seven or eight million, you didn't want an increase in the bank line. So then you go to your best customers, and if you're making money. It's simple. You go, look, we'd like, I'd like you to entertain a 2% discount 10 days net. 
right? So in other words, instead of waiting 75 days, you get paid in 10. Now you use that cash. Now, once somebody say, well, 2%, I can't, I can't live with that. If you, if you're a smaller contractor and you're working on margins like 10 or less, you're in the wrong business. You should be working on margins 25, 30, 35%. Remember, you have minimal overhead. Get a discount. Work with customers who will pay you quickly. That's, that's huge. Simple thing everybody should be doing is, and this kills me why some don't. <clears throat> you develop two things. You develop a budget. The budget is your costs. And that is what really drives, you know, the job reporting. That's not what the customer gets. The customer gets a schedule of values, an SOV. And I'll keep it simple. If you have a 10-story job and your material is worth, uh, you know, 500000 no one is asking you for invoices. And there's nothing wrong with saying, okay, I want to, you know, because of my material, I got to handle, I got to do this, I got to do that. It's actually worth more than what you pay for. And I, and I think that's a pretty good argument. But what goes on a job first? Material on the first floor. So why wouldn't you front end load your, your invoice to your client? Remember, they're keeping 10%. They know you're doing it. They're keeping 10% as retainage. So you need to fund your labor every week, right? So if you can get your SOV, your schedule of values right, and build it in and build in some excess cash up front, you will love it. Now, what about vendors? Go to vendors. Well, why would I go to a vendor? Because if you, if you again, as you grow, people, good, you know, smart businesses, smart manufacturers, smart suppliers and distributors, are looking for the up and comers. Everybody's fighting for the ones up here. They're the, you know, the guys that are bringing, but every year there's new companies coming up. So I like that guy. I like that guy. He's really good. And again, if they trust you, you go to a vendor. I did it and say, look, um, I want to develop terms with you. Now they may want some collateral, who knows, but it's worth asking. Think about this. If you're buying $100,000 worth of product from one company, you know, a month. And they want 30-day terms. That means you're going to have to pay for that material before you get paid. First of all, you can't do that. They got to at least be on the same pay cycle as you or, you know, or you've got an issue. If you change those terms from 30 days to 90 days, now you're creating cash because you're getting paid before you have to pay them. And I'm not talking about, you know, one of those uh, shell games where all of a sudden, you know, you better be making money and you better be able to pay them or it will come to roost. So the simplest, I remember what I did, I had, I used to buy direct from the manufacturer and the suppliers wanted the business. And I, I had an issue with cash flow in a bank. I went to a supplier and changed it from 30 days to 120 days, but I offered them all my business. So everything they got, well, they gave me fair pricing. I paid more. I paid more for the product because they needed to make money. They bought it the same from the manufacturer, but I needed the cash. So it was worth a couple of points, right? You might, um, th there's other way, there's other things to do, but I would say those three things focus on the payment terms with the customer, uh, the, um, the quick pay, you know, the quick pay rebate to the client, 
the schedule of values, right? And payment terms with your uh, vendors. I own a $10 million a year commercial construction business. Is there a path for selling my business? Yes. I mean, there, there, there are several. Now, it, again, I did, I did an entire episode number two on selling business. I do that. That's what I do. Um, I sell, among other things, sell companies. I have active buyers and I find the active sellers and put the two together. I would say this, if you're a $10 million company and your EBITDA, which is your earnings before, you know, income tax, depreciation, amortization, which let's just say pre-tax, we'll, we'll say pre-tax for now, is 15%, you're in, you're in good shape. So you're making money and one of two things can happen. You can find a buyer who appreciates that and can probably do a five times multiple because they'll get paid back in about, about that amount of time. Or you're strong enough to sell it internally. Remember I mentioned Kevin Kenny, Joe Bizzano, right? Or even Larry Reagan, who, do, who I do work with. Those guys are experts on this. But if if you're, make, if you're doing 10 million and, and making 5%, it's gonna be tough. So what's my, what's my point? My point is, first and foremost, are you making money? Do you have equity? Do you have retained earnings, right? Are you in a decent market? Are you in a market that can be scaled up? Why do I say that? You know, if you get a big company that comes in and you're already the big fish, they're gonna invest in you, but you really can't grow that much because you've already maxed out. If, unless you go geographically, of course, if you change geography, that's a little more risky. But if you're a little guy in a big market and you can get the financial support uh, and other support from a big company, a big player in your space. I'm not talking about private equity. I'm talking about a company that does what you do. Wow, you are a huge target. So again, that you know, that's a very, very personal thing. There's a lot of things you should consider. Um, but yes, there is a path for sure. I need to expand my business. Um, what should I what should I consider when start or planning a strategy? So you want to expand your business. This is a really good one. <clears throat> Worked for a um, major, both a private and a major public company, both national companies. Uh, one had a bunch of divisions. One had maybe maybe eight or nine. One had like twenty. Commercial, and. You know, it wasn't it wasn't that much different when you talk about expansion. Now, what stops people from expanding their business? Well, maybe they're happy with where they are, but in this case, I need the question. I need to expand my business. So you've got choices. If you're making money doing what you're doing, obviously keep doing it. Now, there comes in any market a point of diminishing returns. And it sounds like this, whoever asked this question has hit it, which means I'm doing all I can. And for me to continue to do more of the same in the same market, I'm going to have to hit jobs I don't want. I'm going to have to engage customers I don't want. The, the potential for risk goes up and profits go down, right? So you're at a good point now. So what should you do? You can either do what you do in another geography, again, which takes some time. So... If you're a, if you're an electric, well, let's say let's say you're a spray fireproofing contractor, that travels well because it's not a whole lot of manpower. It's equipment intense, you know. 
uh, it's simple to go to the next market and start a business. You already know how to do it. All you got to do is acquaint yourself with new customers. Now, I remember I was from New Jersey. I had a business in New York and Philly and New Jersey itself. Did work in Connecticut. Um, but when I came to DC to start a new business, it was way easier than I did originally because I knew the business. And I already made the mistakes. I didn't make them twice. So ge geographic expansion is not is not a, such a bad thing uh, as long as you're patient because it does take time to build it up. Now, the other option is to do what I'm doing right now. And again, I call it a, an adjacent business. Now, if I was a drywall contractor who wanted to get it into uh, curtain wall, that's probably not an adjacent business, glass curtain wall, right? It's, it's two completely different things. But I remember when I started, here's a good example. I started the business, I was doing insulation inboard of the exterior wall, thermal insulation. Thermal insulation was, let's say a buck a foot, dollar a square foot, 60,000 square foot, 60,000 bucks. Not bad, it was pretty easy work. Then I'm looking at a detail and I'm saying, so on the other side of that sheathing on the exterior wall is the air barrier. Okay, how hard can that be? So I started doing air barrier in like the mid 90s. Air barrier was worth five bucks a foot. So now I've got a $6 a square foot take on the same job. By adding an adjacent, adjacent um, scope of work, which is air barrier, Right, I multiplied my take if on the same job by five times. That was smart, right? Didn't take a whole lot of, uh, 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 you know, of uh, supervision or anything like that. So then I get involved with a company that is stick framing exterior walls at maybe ten bucks a foot, and we figure out a prefab it now at worth fifteen bucks a foot. You add the insulation, the uh, panels, the prefabricated panels, the air barrier. And now we're at 22 bucks a foot, whatever. And this is an open shop market. It'd be way higher in New York. So now what's another adjacent business? I explained a little bit of it earlier is rain screen. What goes outboard of the air barrier? We're already there doing the air barrier. Why not look at what, so rain screen is, is layout, right? It's, it's layout, same thing as drywall. It's installing framing which is the same as drywall, except it's on the exterior wall. Then there's insulation, same thing. And then there's the finish. Now the finish is the actual rain screen component. My point is this, there are smart ways to grow and there are not so smart ways to grow. So either you're going to grow geographically, doing the same thing you do, comfortable, or you're going to take the time to do adjacent business. And now I'll leave you with this. If you want to do adjacent businesses, you should consider people who know the business as an investment in your future. Because if you want to learn by the School of Hard Knocks, go ahead. You want to do rain screen, it's going to take you two years to figure it out. You're going to get frustrated and you're going to lose money. If you can handle both of those things, do it on your own. Otherwise, get professionals who know what they're doing, engage them in a way like I'm, you know, you could. Me, for example, I'm a consultant, right? I'll never do anything that would, uh, you know, that would be, that would hurt people I'm already working with. But there, you know, I hired a guy in a, as a consultant who does all my estimating. It's smart. 
because we're eliminating, reducing, minimizing, not, not eliminating, we're minimizing the learning curve. So if you're gonna expand your business, do it in a smart way, either geographically or hire the right people so you don't go through the nastiness. So I hope you enjoyed this episode. I had fun doing it, man. There's so many good questions out there and maybe you have one or two or three that you want answered. If you do, it's easy enough to get to me through my website, uh, through social media or uh, via LinkedIn. Just, just, uh, just message me there. Uh, thanks again for joining us and we look forward to the next episode. Stay safe and stay tuned. Elevate, elevate, elevate. All the music for the episodes, including our theme song, Elevate, is provided by DMV producer Trey Skills. If you like what you heard, follow Trey Skills on Instagram at Trey Skills, T-R-E-Y-S-K-I-L-L-Z. That's T-R-E-Y-S-K-I-L-L-Z. So follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Elevate Industry. Check out my YouTube channel at Commercial Construction, Elevate the Industry. Visit my website, adicorp.com, A-D-I-C-O-R-P.com. Go to LinkedIn, search for David Proceda, hit connect and follow me. Please rate, review, and comment on this episode. And I look forward to seeing you next week.